The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? How y'all doing out there? Hey, uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. If you would, if you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up and we will make sure that you get one so you can track with us. Um, I have a whole bunch of announcements, but I'm just going to do this. Can we just put them up there? There you go. There's your announcements for the day. No, for real, there's so many things going on, and I really want to get into the text today. So my announcement is that green piece of paper you got when you came in has all the announcements on it. Please read that, and actually some of them are actually today. So you'll want to look at that. Two things I do want to highlight. Save the date for family camp this year. Family camp is going to be up at Lake of the Woods at the Boy Scout camp. That is August 16 through 19. August 16 through 19, very apparently people are excited, that's rad. Um, So make sure you save the date on that. And then the other thing is uh, for those of you um, that are planning on coming with us to man camp but haven't signed up yet, I want to let you guys know, first of all, we have over 400 men signed up for man camp this year, which is rad. And... um, yeah, and it's going to be, um, for those of you that are watching that now really popular documentary series on Netflix about the Rajneeshi cult in Oregon, that's where camp is. And I mean that sincerely. That's where man camp is. Um, it's a rad story of uh, light defeating darkness. So we're going to go study the gospel at the Rajneeshi camp. So we'll thank those dudes for building us a big building we can do it in. Amen. But um, Anyway, so what I want to say, though, is that uh, some of the guys in Acts 29 just this week, because they were looking at the numbers and the number of volunteers needed, were starting the discussion of when do we cut off registration. And so I'm warning you of that today because you guys are like me, procrastinators, and I don't want you to procrastinate to the point that you can't go. So uh, stop at the Connect desk or go on our website, but you'll want to get signed up on the website uh, for Man Camp this year with uh, Ray Ortland preaching. It's going to be an amazing time. Um, okay, so this morning, oh, and one other thing, we have pastor's coffee right after service today. So if you are new or new-ish to Heritage, um, j- we'd love to just take a few minutes to just get to know you and, and be able to answer questions and tell you a little bit about us. It's in the coffee shop right after service. Now, uh, Luke chapter 9, we got a lot to cover and I'm excited about this. So if you would, join me as we stand in honor of God's word and we read the text from this morning. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 17. And the Word of God says this, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds heard it and followed him, he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away 
to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. But there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And all, excuse me, and had them all to sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning for this gift of being able to gather together with the family of God to hear from you, our King. And Lord, that's what we need this morning. We, we don't need Jeff's wisdom or thoughts or ideas. We need the Spirit of God to move and speak to us. We need you, Lord, to show us more and more who you are and to show us more and more how that affects us and how we're to live in light of that. And we need your spirit to empower what you teach us this morning, that we might live it out as we leave this place. So God, that's what we ask. May you meet us here. May we have um, eyes to see and ears to hear. And may your spirit just move. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You can be seated. Luke chapter 9. I'm excited about this one. Um, I, I was going to say a disclaimer at the first service today when we were first starting out. Because I was going to say this text gives me um, a little bit of room to kind of geek out on some Bible theology nerd stuff that I just really like. And then I decided not to say that, though I still sort of said it anyway. And what I mean by that is like, I, I, I say that as if I am and someone else shouldn't be. My hope is, is that all of you will be Bible nerds and theology geeks in the best sense of the word. Because this book is amazing. It's amazing. Like when you see the way things connect, when you see the intentionality of the way things were written, when you see the threads that run together and weave all of these different, not just stories, but books that were written over 1,500 years together, when you see all this stuff happen, man, I, I read these things and I learn these things. I've been like today, the feeding of the 5,000, man, I grew up in the Baptist church. I know this story backwards and forwards or so I thought. And then I go study it and I learn something new again. It's just incredible. And when I, when I see these kind of things, like, I just look at this and I go, I, how do people not know that this is true? How do they not believe? And so, so I hope that all of you guys get excited about these kinds of things. If you don't, man, pray. Something's not right there because you should. Because God's word is amazing. Amen? It's amazing. It really, really is. And hopefully I'm going to be able to point to something in that today. Um, I'm going to geek out anyway. You guys can come with me or not. It's, we're all here for the hour, right? So come with me. But this is what we're going to do. And so before we do this, though, I want to point, uh, I want to kind of reset to a certain extent. Because we've, we've been in Luke for a while. And Luke's written with a really specific purpose that really comes to light in this particular text today. So um, when Luke was written, it's written by Luke for a man named Theophilus. It's really part one of a two-part uh, story, you might say. Uh, both Luke and Acts are together. It's, it's one account all the way through. And Luke's written with a specific purpose. L look at Luke chapter one. we got the text here. Luke 1 says this at the very beginning of the book. 
It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke tells us right here in this verse, in this account, that there's a purpose to, the, to what he wrote. And the purpose is that he has gone, he's talked to eyewitnesses, he's talked to teachers, he's looked at previous written accounts, he's taken all of these things, and he himself has been following this stuff for some time. And he's compiling a detailed, accurate narrative so that we might know for certain and if you go all the way back to our very first study when we opened this book out, we talked about how the idea there is not, it's not for certain as if it's like a cloud or an idea, but the word used there is certainty as if it's a mountain. That you might know with the certainty of the reality of Mount Shasta as it stands before you. Like you know for a fact that this stuff is true. And there's two particular things he really tends to focus on in that that's really going to come to light in today's passages. The first question he always seeks to answer, um, the theological word for this is called Christology. But the really easy way of saying it is, who is Jesus? Who is he? He's asking that question throughout the book, especially in Luke. And we've seen this progression. If you've been with us going through this for a little while, you see it building. Because in Luke chapter 6, you might remember John the Baptist. He's the forerunner of Jesus, the prophet that's supposed to go before Jesus and tell everybody about Jesus to come. He ends up where? He ends up in prison. And he's sitting there and he's confused because he's like, hey, Jesus, didn't you say that, that you were here to set captives free? And I'm your forerunner and I'm in jail. So uh, question, are, are you him? Are you the Messiah or should we wait for someone else? Who are you? Are you really the guy? Then in Luke chapter 8, it gets into this idea where, they, remember the disciples are in the boat and the storm kicks up real bad and they're scared to death and they think they're going to die. And so they, they end up waking up Jesus and he, yell, he literally yells at, he, he yells to the ocean and to the winds, stop! And the winds just instantly cease. The water instantly goes flat and the guys are freaked out, actually afraid is what the text says. And it says that they, they looked at him and they're discussing and they go, what manner of man is this that the wind and seas would obey him? It's that same idea. Who is this? And this is going to continue. You're going to see it again in this text, this question being addressed. And it's going to continue into our next passage next week, to give you a heads up, that famous encounter between Jesus and Peter, where he says, hey, Peter, who do people say that I am? And he, he says, well, very similar to what you'll see in our text today. Some people say you're this guy, and some people say you're this guy, and some people say you're this guy. And then he says, no, 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 but who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that spirit-empowered declaration. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And he answers that question resoundingly. And so, so as we go through this text, Luke is asking the question, who is Jesus. And it's going to come to a real culmination next week and then into the transfiguration where Jesus will be on the mountain and we, we get this picture into the reality of who he really is, right? And then the other thing, and it's related, the other question Luke's always dealing with is, what does it look like to follow Jesus? 
I mean, we definitely see this in the book of Acts, but they're related because who Jesus is, if he's Lord, if he's king, then it mandates that we do follow him. So these questions are connected. But also looking at who Jesus is and the way that he lived teaches us how to follow him as well. So the two questions today are, who is Jesus? It's a question of Christology. And the second question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? That's a question of discipleship. Who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow him? And our text today is all about these two questions. You could break it down this way. Verses 1 through 6 are about discipleship, following Jesus. Verses 7 through 9 are about Christology. Who is Jesus? And then verses 10 through 17 are both in a powerful, I think, and like I said, I'm going to geek out on it, so I hope you come with me, powerful, powerful way. You guys ready for this? All right, so let's go into it. Verse one, and he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So we've been introduced before to the disciples of Jesus Christ, the 12 disciples. Their names are Peter, uh, Simon Peter, Matthew, James the son of Zebedee, John the son of Zebedee, Judas Iscariot, Andrew, Thomas, Simon the Zealot, Philip, James the son of Alphaeus, Bartholomew and Judas Thaddeus. There's 12 disciples. These are the 12 original men that Jesus picked to be his disciples. He's going to teach them. They're going to follow him. They're going to learn from him. He's going to be about their ministry. That's what it meant then to be a disciple. And the number 12 is really significant. It's not an accident. There's a reason he didn't pick 11. There's a reason he didn't pick 13. He's picking 12 on purpose. Because how many tribes are there in the nation of Israel? There's 12. And Jesus is creating a new Israel. And this is what I mean by that. When God created Israel, and there were the 12 tribes of Israel, the divisions within the nation of Israel, what was their purpose? They were going to be a missionary nation, right? I mean, he says in the very creation, he says to them, I'm going to bless others through you. Those that bless you will be blessed. And that, that the idea is... Israel would be a missionary nation, and so all the other nations of the world would be better off because Israel's there. Blessings that flow into the nation of Israel would then flow out to the people around there. They were to testify of God. He even gives them his law, not just a governed behavior, but he's teaching them about his own character, about what God is like. He's telling them, hey, don't steal. Why? Because God's not a thief. God's a giver. He's telling them, don't kill. Why? Because God's the author of life and people are created in the image of God and there's honor in that. And so what he's doing in all of those things is he's crafting a nation that looks different than every other nation in the world because they're supposed to be like him. They're supposed to look like him. They're supposed to have his character and they're supposed to be a blessing to everyone else in the world in the same way they have been blessed by him. That's what they were supposed to be. So how'd that go? Not so good. They went from people who had received the favor of God to believing they were God's favorites. 
And so the prophetic writings are all calling Israel out, saying, what are you doing? You're getting fat on these blessings. You were supposed to be a vessel of blessing to others. You were supposed to be taking care of the poor. You were supposed to be feeding the hungry. You were supposed to be doing all these things. And instead, you just gobble all this stuff up yourself. And now you even isolate yourself from the other nations of the world. You look down on all of these other people. And Israel goes through some real hardship because of that. But now Jesus is on the scene, the Messiah who's going to accomplish the mission God has created. And so he calls 12 disciples. Why? Because now it's as if he's creating this new Israel. And he's preaching about this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And through him and through the vessel of blessing through, going through all of these 12 disciples, which is now includes us as that has expanded throughout history, God is saying, now you're my missionary people. Now you're the vessel of blessing to the rest of the world. So it's significant that he chooses 12. But again, like I was just saying, the term disciples does not just mean just those 12. The term disciple is the word that is then given to describe someone who follows Jesus. And this is really important for us to understand for this text, okay? Because take a look at this. Look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. We've got the text right here. And Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go, therefore, and make what? Say it with me. Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this right here is Jesus giving that, that uh, uh, um, mandate to his disciples that says, now go make more of you. Go take all the things I taught you, teach other people. And if this is the great commission given to the church, then it's, it's a mandate for multiplication, is it not? Because part of being a disciple is then making more disciples. Understand? And so think of it in terms of the nation of Israel. If we are God's new people to, to be vessels of that grace, then the last thing he wants us to do is just receive teaching, receive salvation, receive grace, and then just camp on it, Right? It's been given to us that those blessings, including the news of the grace of God, might flow through us to other people. So when we read these texts about being a disciple, we need to understand when we read even how Jesus taught his disciples and led his disciples, he's teaching us too. And the things that they're doing apply to us too. Like this is really important that we grasp this because honestly, any of you here in this room that would claim the name of Jesus and, and, and are, are saved, you are disciples, you would say, of Jesus Christ, you're only here because other faithful people did that, right? I mean, just think if the person who shared Jesus with you had decided to clam up and not do it, right? And so we have to understand that this mission that we're about to see take place here, you're watching the disciples but you're learning about what it is for us to be a disciple. Are you guys with me on this? Amen? So this is what he's telling us to do. This is really about us. Say it's about us. All right, so, but here's the important part to notice. Up until this point, being a disciple of Jesus was completely passive. It was completely passive. Learn, listen, kind of follow, go to the next place. Learn, listen, watch. Oh, he got that benefit oh we got blessings too like not really doing anything until now and so now we see sort of the start of this ministry of multiplication take place verse two is really a parallel of what's going to take place in acts one and two because take a look it says 
and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He calls the disciples in. Let's read verse one and two, actually. And he called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. This is an absolutely close parallel to what takes place in the book of Acts. So he's teaching them, and then in the book of Acts, you're gonna see them do it even more. God calls us, God empowers us by the Spirit of God, and then God sends us to go out and actually be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is not passive. It is active. And and this is super, super important to say right here because for so many people, and and for some of you in here, and I say this graciously but seriously, um, some of us have been stuck in the passive mode of discipleship for far, far, far too long far too long. And at a certain point, we have to understand God calls us and he's empowering us so that he might send us. This is the purpose of discipleship. This is why God saved you. God did not save us that we would just come to church on Sunday and sit in a a seat, listen to a sermon once in a while, and then go about our week. We've been called We've been empowered by the Spirit of God, and we've been sent to go make other disciples. And passivity at a certain point ends. I understand when you're a baby Christian, you're just learning and all those kinds of things. But honestly, too, like we talked about on Easter Sunday, go look at the resurrection accounts, man. When people saw Jesus was alive, first thing they did was go tell people. So maybe this is something you need to chew on right now for real. And to just understand, like, Okay, if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, disciple doesn't just mean an intellectual assent to the information given, that I just simply believe in the information. But being a disciple is that understanding the information has been given as well as the Spirit of God, that we might go do something with it. And this is really, really, really important. And and now let's learn some things from this. Look at this. What is the actual mission? Verse 2, he sent them out to do what? to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. It's the twofold ministry of what being a disciple or being a Christian in general is supposed to be. Heal just means mercy ministry in general. In, in that day, whether it be physical healings or casting out demons or any of that, that was, that was that same world. So the idea is to proclaim good news and to be ministers of mercy. And we see this in even Jesus' own description of what his ministry was. Look at this in Luke chapter 4. You might remember us studying this. It says in Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What do we see in that? It's the twofold ministry of what Jesus came to do, to proclaim good news and to bring mercy. And and this is what we are called to do. Every follower of Jesus Christ is called to that twofold ministry, that we would be those who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the new kingdom, the mercy of Jesus Christ that we've received, but also that we would be those who come in and heal and you go, well, what, what do you mean? Now you're getting weirdo, like supernatural, like I pronounce you healed kind of stuff. I don't, maybe. Holy Spirit can do some amazing things. He's incredibly powerful. But I, I just mean in general. So like to go to your neighborhood and go, hey, who's hurting? And how can I help them heal? Is there a single mom living next door? 
and you can hear the kids crying all the time and you can't figure out how she gets anything done anyway and you see the grass getting longer and longer and longer, well, you can bring healing and mercy to her by stepping in and saying, I'm gonna take this on. Or what about in your, your workplace or your community or, or wherever it is? And if you don't have a place, you go find a broken place and help them heal, but bring the truth too. Because if we just feed those who are hungry and we don't actually give them the truth of the gospel, then we haven't really given them a satisfying, all-sustaining meal. Right, church? But we'll get to that in a minute. But this is what the church is called to do. And we see this beginning. So it starts out with Jesus doing this work and the disciples watching. Now he sends out the 12 and they're doing this stuff. A chapter from now, it's going to be 72 people that are going out and doing these things. And then you follow this progression all the way into the book of Acts, and the church is spreading all over the world. And again, you're sitting here today because someone actually followed Jesus and the call to discipleship. So praise God for that person, right? Amen? But it's not passive, church. If you're just here to sit, but you're not looking to follow, you're not a disciple, you're a consumer. You're just taken in. And I'm urging you, you are missing out. You're, you're in disobedience from what God's called us to do, and you're missing out. And we're gonna see this in an amazing way right here. Um, he gives them some negative instructions in verses three through four. They're allowed a tunic, belt, sandals, that's it. What's the point of that? Like, why is he sending them out with nothing? Well, when you look at this, and then you look at the story that's to come, I think it becomes really clear that what Jesus is doing is he's showing them here that service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And again, for those of you that would say you're still in that season of passivity when it comes to following Jesus, understand this, because we always have tons of reasons why we can't go serve and follow Jesus right now. Life's busy, I have too many, you know, my kids are young right now, if my kids get older, they would be, I wouldn't have to do everything for them all the time, so that would free me up to be able to follow Jesus. Um, I can tell you as someone whose kids are getting older now, that's not how it ends up working out. It actually goes the exact opposite direction as they get older, just so you know. But um, all of those kind of things, work is too busy, I, I don't know the Bible well enough, I need to learn more before I can do this, and I need to this, and there's, there's always things we can point to and say that we don't have, and so we can't go follow Jesus. We're lacking in time. We're lacking in resources. We're lacking in money. We're like, whoa, listen, following Jesus on mission is about depending on Jesus. And he is not going to send you somewhere and not provide for you. And he's teaching the disciples this. It's right in line with what he had told them previously, right? He told them, hey, don't worry about where you're going to live. Don't worry about the clothes that you're gonna wear. Don't worry about the food that you're gonna eat. Look at the birds, look at the lilies of the field. Look how God takes care of creation. God knows that you have need of these things and aren't you greater than they? Don't worry about those things. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added to you. And this is what Jesus is teaching them. He, he's teaching them to just go and follow and he's teaching them that he will provide through the relationships that they're actually going to have when he comes forward. So we see this again in verse four. He says, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. What he means is this. Let's say um, it was back in that day, but you were sent to, I don't know, White City. 
That's where, that was your assignment. Jesus said, you're going to White City to go and minister the gospel and to serve. And so you go in there and someone over off Antelope or Avenue G or some road over there has a house and they were like, yeah, I'll take you in, man, come on in. I wanna know about Jesus, you can stay here and you build some relationship there. But as your gospel ministry grows, someone who lives on Eagle Point Golf Course says, do you need a place to stay? I got a hot tub. And you're thinking, man, my dogs are barking at the end of a day with these one pair of sandals. And I mean, it would be really nice after a tough day of serving Jesus to go put my feet in a hot tub and chill. So, I'm, hey guys, thank you for your hospitality. I really appreciate this, but I'm gonna bounce. I'm gonna go over here. I don't need your place. He's like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't do that. Just when you get to a place and a relationship's built, you stay there. And you start ministering to people here. You start building off of those relationships and that's your place. So again, where, where's God planted you? Maybe you're in White City or Central Point or Medford. Or maybe you're working at Erickson or Bear Creek or wherever you might work. Where's the place that God has built you? Notice this. He's called us to minister within the context of relationships, even from the very, very beginning. Which I find comforting. Because if he called us to go stand on the street corner with a megaphone, man, I would be so much more resistant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That would make me so uncomfortable. But, but I can talk with people that I love. I can build relationships with places. I can go to places where people don't know Jesus and become their friend and love on them and those kinds of things. I can do that. And most of us already have those places around us in life somewhere. So being a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that we have to pack everything up and move to Africa or something like that to go be a minister. God has placed you in a foreign territory if you understand foreign territory in terms of you are now part of the kingdom of God and that's not. And you're an ambassador to that place. So go. Find those relationships and pour into them. Now, Interestingly enough, one of the big reasons that we don't want to go talk about Jesus to people and don't want to be those who proclaim the gospel is fear of rejection, right? It's true. It's absolute truth. But it, we should just accept it and be okay with it by now because it's here. I mean, he says it in verse 5, wherever they do not receive you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. It's, the, it's, it's a Jewish uh, uh, way of almost like showing judgment against the city that has kicked you out, and you're not even going to carry the dirt from that town on to someone else. You are on your own. It's, it's, that's kind of the idea. Um, but, but it's a guarantee that there's going to be opposition. Choosing to be a disciple of Jesus means from time to time it's absolutely going to happen. And, and it's not just in this that we see the promise. It's from the very beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Um, in the curse, when, when God is talking to the serpent after the fall of man, look what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, that doesn't just mean like... Uh, man, people are going to be afraid of snakes for the rest of forever. Like, I'm going to put enmity between you and baby snakes. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there's going to be these, this war between these two camps, those who are believers and followers of Jesus or followers of, of the kingdom of God and those who are not. And there's real enmity there. It's just there. And you cannot do effective ministry for Jesus Christ and never be rejected. It won't happen. It just doesn't happen. So we need to just understand that and maybe even to just take out of our own text right here, just shake the dust off. It's Taylor Swift theology. Haters gonna hate. Shush, shush, shake it off. First service, they didn't like that at all. 
It's true, though. She's a theologian. Everybody's a theologian, just some are better than others. So this is what he has called them to do, and he sends them out, and what happens? They go and they do it. Verse 6, they go and they're sharing and they're, they're healing and they're doing all these things. It's incredible, right? It's a good story. And then there's dun, dun, dun. There's like this cloud that's inserted right into the middle of our narrative. It says, and now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared. By others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, if you remember, as we've been talking about what's going on in this particular area, they're in the area of Galilee. By the Sea of Galilee, uh, Bethsaida, where they're about to go, is on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, where the river comes in. It's a fishing community about 100 yards from the river right there. And this is, it's a beautiful area. It's really lush, very green, agrarian society. It's farmers, it's fishermen. It's like my kind of place. That, that, that's what this place is. But there's, it's small. Like it's small villages all around the lake. If you ever read the Bible and you start noticing there's different names for the Sea of Galilee that pop up all the time, part of the reason is you have these remote villages around this massive lake. And many of these people, maybe other than maybe to go to Jerusalem uh, um, for the different feasts that men were required to, many of them, and that's, your, that's where you grew up, that's where you live your whole entire life. And so different regions would have different names for the lake depending on where you were. Massive place, small villages, and yet thousands of people are showing up to come and see Jesus. And I mean, like, by small villages, I'm saying, like, a big village is a hundred people. And as we're going to see here in just a little while, there may be as many as over 20,000 people at one of Jesus' teaching. And so news of all these miracles is getting out. Like st the news is getting around. And this guy, Herod, he's the, the puppet Idumean king there of that area that's still under the thumb of Rome. He's a disgusting, disgusting man. And he's beginning to hear word of this. And he's perplexed. He's like, I'm hearing about these miracles. I'm hearing about all this stuff. What is going on? And he's asking around. And some people are saying, and by the way, this should already be connecting you to next week's story about Jesus saying to Peter, who do they say that I am? But so as, as Herod's asking, he's hearing these same kind of things. He's like, well, I mean, some people are saying that, that it's the prophet Elijah who's appeared, which is kind of funny because Elijah's going to also appear in just a few verses, Mount of Transfiguration. But he's going, some people are saying it's Elijah. Some people are saying it's one of these prophets. And then he drops this one on here. Says, and, and some people say John has been raised from the dead. Now, this is news to us traveling through the book of Luke. But we know what happened because of the book of Mark. Um, Herod is involved in an incestuous relationship. And John the Baptist, who had been, he's the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one who Jesus had said of him, no greater man has been born of woman than this man right here. But he gets thrown in prison because he's embarrassing Herod and this woman. He's, he's constantly preaching against this, this incestuous relationship. And so he gets locked away. And then there's this, in, this really disgusting story where, where they get the daughter to go in and start dancing seductively while Herod's drunk. And he gets to a place where he's like, I'll give you anything you want. Just say it. And they say, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And done. And so John the Baptist is killed. And so Herod is perplexed going, 
some of this even sounds John the Baptist-ish. Like, what's happening? What's going on? And it says, and he sought to see him, which is interesting, because he's going to see Jesus eventually, is he not? Fast forward to the crucifixion accounts, he gets to see Jesus. And what is it that he does when Jesus is on trial before him? He wants a show. Hey, I've heard about all these miracles. I've heard about all this stuff you've been doing. Do something for me. But Jesus isn't going to be his puppet and refuses to do it. And so Herod's like, ah, and he's gone. That should be a little bit of a word of warning. Because even in this text, we're seeing, and I'm, I'm paralleling it intentionally to Acts chapter 2, about the empowering of the Spirit of God for mission. And there are so many people that, that in, in our church culture, there can be this, like, I want to experience God. I want to experience the Spirit of God. I want to feel the Spirit of God. Um, Pastor Sam and I got to go, um, I don't know, a couple years ago now up to Western Seminary and sit in some lectures by um, Art Azurdia, a pastor and, and teacher up there. And he was teaching about the mission of the church and about the Spirit of God. And, and he, he said, he was highlighting the fact that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was given to the church for the purpose of the mission of God. That twofold mission of, of spreading mercy, of doing works of mercy and, pro, and proclaiming the gospel. And he said, I remember him saying this. He said, so many people go, I just want to feel the spirit of God. I want to experience that. And he said, but so many of them are just sitting in the sanctuary of a church going, I want to feel him here. And forgetting the fact that the spirit of God was given that you might go out there. He said, you want to experience the spirit of God? You go get on mission with God. You go start serving Jesus in the way we've been called to do and trusting in the Spirit of God to lead and empower you as you go do those things. You will see the Spirit work. But don't get sidetracked into a consumeristic mindset regarding the Holy Spirit, especially in thinking that it's all the Holy Spirit's here because of us. Go, disciples. He's empowered you with the Spirit. The Spirit came so that we go. This is what we've been called to. And it's interesting, here's Herod going, I want to see. I want to see this stuff. But the Bible actually says what? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And what Herod heard, that wasn't important to him. He just wanted to see a show. Well, he'll get to see. But we also learned something else, by the way, from Mark chapter 6. Because Mark chapter 6's account also tells us that not only has John the Baptist been killed, but that the disciples go and retrieve the body. The headless body of their friend, the headless body of whom they were told no greater man has ever been born than him, the headless body of the one who was preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ, they had to go retrieve it, and they took him and they put his body into a tomb and they buried him. And now they're coming back to Jesus. And you gotta wonder, how stoked were they on ministry at that point? Don't you think some of them had some questions? I mean, first of all, just grief. Just grief. I mean, imagine even the heaviness of having to carry your friend's headless body and go bury it. That's not easy. That's going to affect your day. And then on top of that, here they are thinking, okay, that was the forerunner of Jesus. Um, and he, Jesus told us this, is the best that's ever been. So what does this mean for us? And then thinking about the fact that now here they are in this area, they're doing the same things. 
Now they're preaching the good news. Now they're bringing healing. Does that mean that that's coming for them too? And then finally, look at the crowds coming. Do you think they're maybe wondering, like, these crowds are bad news, man. This has got to die down a little bit because Herod's asking questions. We saw what happened to John. Like, it's affecting these guys. And Jesus is gracious. And so it says in verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So he just, let's get away. Take you guys away. So they go up to this town. They need a break. They need a rest, right? And Jesus is doing this. He's taking them away, except for people. Verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. You got to feel for him, right? You ever had one of those days where you're just like, man, I just want to rest today. I just want to kind of take the day off. And then you get up and something happens and something happens. The next thing you know, it's 10 o'clock at night and you've been working all day. Like this is what happens to them. And I would imagine they were really excited when Jesus told them, let's go, let's go away. Let's go take a break. Let's get away. And then they see the people coming and they're like, oh man. And then Jesus goes to the people and they're hoping he'll go, hey guys, I know you guys are here and I know you want to hear me teach some more and some things like that. But look, um, my, my guys have had a rough day. We just need a, a little break and we'll meet you guys like next week or something. But right now we, we got to step away. It's probably what they were hoping. Nope. The people show up. And what does the text tell us? Jesus welcomed them. And then it says, and he began to speak to them of the kingdom of God and cure those who had need of healing. That's the ministry again, right? And so they're, all right, here we go again. Let's do it. And they're working. And the day wears long. It says the day began to wear away. And so they come to him. And they, it sounds like they're doing it for the benefit of the people, but they're not. And we shouldn't judge them for that because we get it. Like they're going, Jesus, look, man, it is late. And these people, there's, as we're about to see, thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And we're in this remote place. They're going to need food. They've, some of these people have traveled from villages who knows where. Did you see that one guy's boat? He floated over here in that thing. Like we need... We need to give these guys the opportunity to go find lodging, find food. It's for them, Jesus. <laughs> you know they were off to the side like Peter probably. Hey guys, come here, I got an idea. Here's what we'll say to Jesus. This will totally work because it'll be showing our love for the people. <laughs> and then Jesus says, verse 13, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. And by the way, in the language, the emphasis is on you. Jesus, we need to let them go feed. And Jesus goes, you feed them. That is the last thing they wanted to hear. That is the last thing they wanted to hear at that point. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. In other words, do you, do you expect us to go buy the food for all these guys? We have nothing. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, there's some things to notice in here. First of all, of course they have nothing. Remember, Jesus sent them with nothing. They have nothing. However, they are not without 
opportunity or resource. Number one, Bethsaida is a town. And of all the small villages around there, it's one of the bigger towns. So this whole idea of desolate place, it's a little exaggeration. They're like, we're in the middle of nowhere as they lean on the Starbucks. You know what I mean? So it's a little bit of an exaggeration. And Philip, Andrew, and Peter are from Bethsaida. So they know people. They know the town. Um, But here's the idea. The point of Jesus sending them with nothing at the very beginning was to teach them what? Dependence on him. That he would provide. That he'll take care of it. He'll arrange the relationships. It's going to work out. You don't need to depend on all these things. You just need to depend on me. Guys, don't you remember? Guys, don't you remember? The fishing? You were like, well, there's no reason to fish. We've caught nothing. We've been out here all day. And I said, throw your net on the other side. And you caught fish. You didn't just catch fish. I almost sank your boat. Like when you obey and follow me, even when you feel like you have nothing, I'm going to provide. And oftentimes with abundance in ways you can't even possibly imagine. That was the point of the whole story. And so now Jesus is going to teach them this in a seriously real way. Verse 14, for there were about 5,000 men. The word there literally translates males. So it's not men in the general sense of man, woman, men, mankind. It's not that. It's there's 5,000 men. So if you think in the Jewish culture then, uh, let's, let's just assume just for math, let's say every guy brought his wife. That's pretty common that, you know, and most people were married at that time. So then you could be up to 10,000. And then if they have kids, it's not like they had daycare they could drop them off on, especially if they were having to travel as far as they did to come. So if you only had two kids each, a husband and a wife, that's 20,000 people that are there, right there. And that culture had kids, man, like more than this church. And this church has kids. <laughs> you guys are fertile. But... Um, but this, these people, oh my goodness, right? So, so there could be anywhere from 10,000 to 20 or more thousand people that are all gathered together. And Jesus just told them, you feed them. And so he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. How many baskets? Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Again, not eleven, not thirteen. Twelve just so happens. Right? So what do we notice from this? Well, we said the two things that he's focusing on. Discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And Christology, who is Jesus? So let's think about this for just a minute before we go. Discipleship, what does it mean to follow Jesus? The fact that 12 baskets was left over was absolutely significant. Everyone was fed, including the disciples, but who had the abundance? Who were the people left over? Who were the people that even knew a miracle was taking place in the first place? I mean, imagine if you would being those guys. All right, sit down, uh, one, two, three, four, four, nine, 50, you. Sit down, uh, and like, not happy about doing it, right? And then they go, all right, let's see how this goes. And he starts breaking it. And as they're walking, they're like, that was weird. Um, okay, you, and you, and they just give food to 50 people when they only had that little bitty amount of food. And that's just one group. I mean, if there were only five, 
I mean, if there are only 5,000 people and they're sitting in 50, is that, I mean, that, that's a lot of groups. Okay, well, now I've got to get the food for the other group, and you walk over and you get, where is this coming from? <laughs> it's weird. Hey, are you guys seeing this? What's going on? Feeding the next ones, and then they come over. I bet you after a while they weren't thinking about what they had just done the last few days. I bet you as they watched Jesus miraculously providing for people who were in need, I bet they suddenly weren't thinking about how tired they were. I bet they were laughing. I bet they were freaking out. And I bet they were super, super glad they were doing it. That's a lesson for us. Because there's always a reason to not serve. There's always a reason. But we are missing out. We're missing out. There is such blessing in serving. And then if you go, yeah, but what about them? Yeah, what about them? They had nothing, and now they've got baskets of food, more food than anybody there when they had nothing to begin with. God's got you covered. You don't have to wait until your deficiencies are covered up so that you can go serve Jesus. He will be the one who provides for your deficiencies. And he's teaching them that even in their exhaustion and their struggles, that he will be their rest. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's saying, guys, if you rested for a week and then came back, you will not be as fulfilled as you are right now seeing what I can do. You will not have the kind of energy, the kind of zeal, and the kind of joy if you sleep for a month that you will if you come to me because my rest is better than anything you will find anywhere else. My, my food, my sustenance, my provision for you, you cannot match that anywhere else. You come to me. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And now they're watching it happen and I bet they were cracking up. Just laughing. And if these people had any idea what's going on right here, and this little kid in the back going, I'm going to fish every day from now on now. Church, don't miss this. Don't wait. Serve. You're missing out. If you're not following Jesus, if you're not going and making disciples, you, you are in disobedience to the Lord who called us to do so. That's true. But I'm telling you right now, too, you're just plain missing out. You're not living the kind of life that you could live and you're, you're gonna regret that. Do this and then he'll take care of you. So that's what, what we can learn about discipleship from this. But what about the other one, Christology? Who is Jesus? And this is where I'm gonna totally geek out here and I hope you come with me. Like this, is, this was goosebumps for me. There's something significant about meals in scripture. Have you ever noticed? Like it, it starts with food in Genesis. I give you the whole garden. You can eat of any of these trees. Just don't eat of that one. And there's always these things regarding food all the time. You get into the Passover meal. You've got the feast that Israel was given. You've got manna, the food that they were given. You get into communion. You know, all these, there's always these things about food. Even Jesus, after he's resurrected and they're like, man, are you real or are you a ghost? He's like, hey, give me some food, I'm hungry. Like there's always these things, food seems to be significant in the scripture and it's important. I told, this, uh, this, this is how ridiculous I was as a kid. So I was a picky eater when I was a kid and I didn't like vegetables and I literally in my mind used to think when I was little, man, why didn't God just create us with a zipper on our stomach? That way we could just unzip, take the greens, dump it in there and we don't have to actually taste it. We can move on about it. I'd be the healthiest kid in the world if God would just give me a zipper stomach. 
That's what I actually thought. But, but think about the way that he's done meals. Like food has taste. That's a grace from God. Like there's, there's an enjoyment to it. He even created us in such a way. Like he could have made us to where food was just a pill that we took and then that's all we do. You take your pill in the morning and you're good and you go on about your day. But no, he created us so that we have multiple meals and, we, and, and food is, is delicious. And then he grafts in this idea of giving thanks so that we might understand that he is the ultimate giver of all good gifts. It's really tying back to the issue of we are to live in dependence and gratitude with God. And so that's kind of how that works. He could have made us like, you know, um, well, yeah, like snakes, which is a really bad analogy for the Genesis example. But he could have, you know, Python eats like what, once a month or something like that if it gets a deer, but he doesn't do that. Like there's these rhythms around meals. Meals are important even in scripture. And this meal is massively important in ways I'd never even considered until even just this weekend. This is the only miracle that is accounted for in, both, or in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, I mean, other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle that's done that the narrative is in all four of the Gospels. So there's clearly some sort of emphasis taking place. And then on top of that, man, this meal in particular says so much about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Remember, we're talking about Christology. It means, who is Jesus? So I want you to think about this meal like this. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. This verse, in all of the gospel accounts, is almost verbatim. Though other things are phrased different ways, this one verse, for some reason, is like verbatim, no matter which guy told the story. Like maybe there's an emphasis. Read it again. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to be before the crowd. I want you to notice the verbs. I'm geeking out right now, just so you know. All right, notice the verbs. He took the loaves. He looked up to heaven and blessed them. So he took the loaves, he blessed, he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. Now remember what I told you, Luke is no slouch. He writes these things with intentionality. It's 12 disciples on purpose. It's 12 loaves on purpose. He's focusing things. Remember now, this account even takes place right in the middle of two questions. Herod, who is this guy? I got to see. And the next text, which we'll be looking at next week, where Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. In Luke's writings, that account appears again in a really cool way. You guys know the story of the road to Emmaus? The disciples, after Jesus died, are walking. And Jesus is walking with them, but they have no idea that it's him. And he says, why are you guys so down? What's going on? And they say, what? (laughs) Who are you? Where are you from? That you don't know what's been going on in Jerusalem lately. They don't know who he is. And they enter into this interaction about the scriptures. And Jesus, when they still don't know who he is, is teaching about the scriptures and all these different kinds of things. And then look what happens. Let's put this text up. 
when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him. He took, he blessed, he broke it, and he gave. And in that moment, suddenly they go, I know who that is. Now, why do they recognize that so much? Is it just because of this account? No, no, no. Happens one more time. Go to the Last Supper text. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, that's blessing, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Please tell me somebody else in here has goosebumps seeing this kind of stuff. The feeding of the 5,000 is not just Jesus giving food to some people who are hungry. It is a declaration of who he is and what he came to do. And their call to discipleship is rooted in this. You feed them, but we don't have anything. You don't even understand the kind of provision I'm about to throw down on you boys. And this is what's happening. Consider the details even of this meal. Just think about it for just a second. Um, for example, when it says that he had them sit in 50 each, that's a specific Jewish phrase when he says 50 each, only appears one other time in scripture, and it's in the, the Old Testament in 2 Kings. You can look it up for yourself, but it's the story of Elijah. Remember? Herod, who is this guy? Well, some people say he's Elijah. There's a connection made. Then take a look at this. Mary, look, put this up, Luke, Luke 1, 53. Mary said this about Jesus himself. Do we have this text? I can't remember if I gave you that. I don't, we don't, never mind, just don't look at that. Luke 1, 53, Mary sings, he has filled the hungry with good things. And then even in the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, given in that very area in Luke six twenty one, what does he say? Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be. Where did that word just pop up? Oh, in our story, look at verse 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. Think about this meal, guys. This is not a tide you over till you can get back home to eat. It's not let's just give them a snack till they find something better. It's Jesus saying, I can fill you. I will satisfy you. I'm not just a snack that you add in into part of your life and then you find other things too. You depend on me and you will be satisfied. And there's so many more tie-ins here that are unbelievable. Just think of the meal in general. In a Jewish custom, where's all the ritual? Where's the hand-washing that Jesus gets in trouble for with some of the religious leaders? Where's all of that stuff? Because in a crowd that size, you definitely have unclean people in there. You definitely have broken people. You got sinners. You got all kinds of people that he's not even supposed to be in contact with. And yet here's this meal given that is freely given with no restrictions, no prerequisites. The only requirement is that you be hungry. And they are satisfied. This is a awesome declaration of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus came to do. This is Jesus, the new Israel, and his 12 disciples, and blessing flowing through them to feed and satisfy people from all around. And it's what we are called to do now, to follow this king, Jesus, who took up our cause, who is blessed by the Father, who was broken for our sin, and who gave himself for us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not just a big meal. 
It's not just feeding 5,000 people or some random miracle. It is a staunch declaration of who Jesus Christ is, nestled right between who is he? And it's a call to discipleship that this is what we do now too. This is the good news we proclaim. And you can do it through a meal. Invite people over and cook a meal. Not just an average meal. Don't, you know, don't get Little Caesar's pizza. You know what I mean? And, but I mean that. Because think of it even theologically. Meals mean something. So you have a non-believer. You got some neighbors or whatever. Okay, let's do this. Let's give them a satisfying meal. Let's give them the kind of meal that they're like, where did this come from? And then let's point to Jesus. Like, guys, that's, that's just a practical, basic, easy way to be able to tell somebody about Jesus right there that any of us can do. Invite some friends over for dinner that don't know. And when you get the opportunity to break bread with them and give the blessing, you're just saying, hey, guys, before we eat, I just want to stop and pray to the Jesus who, all this food was made possible, not because of us. This is because Jesus blessed us. So can we just stop and, like, just that alone, that's ministry. That's that's chasing and building disciples that we can do. And it's biblical and it tastes good, amen? Like church, this is what we're called to do. And I'm telling you, if you sit around just waiting, if you, if you buy into all the excuses and all the reasons that you can't do it, you are missing out on joy and provision and relationship and partnership with Jesus and an empowerment of the Holy Spirit that you're not going to feel just sitting and consuming. Don't be the one who just sat on the ground and ate. Be the one who served and got to see this whole thing go down. This is what we're called to do, church. Let's stand and pray that we actually do it. Father, please, Please don't let this be um, like you just taught, one of those seeds that gets choked out by the concerns of the world. Because there's no doubt that the moment we walk out of here understanding the truth of your gospel and our call that the enemy wants to lie to us, there will be enmity and opposition against us. And sometimes it's as simple and effective as the enemy telling us, you can't really do that. You don't have time for that. You won't be effective at that. They're not going to like that. But Father, our, our, this isn't about us. We don't rest on our own strength. We don't rest on our own provision. We are dependent on you and your spirit to make disciples. We just want to be your servants. So I pray, God, against a spirit of passivity or consumerism in the church. Father, help us to be about your mission Help us to be able to see these things. Having seen who you are and having seen what you've done for us, having seen how you despised comfort and you despised pain and you despised all of those kinds of things that you might come and save us, Father, help us to do the same. And in the places, God, where our spirit is willing but our flesh is weak, Lord, will you empower us and may your love cast out fear May your grace and the promise of provision be our focus. And may we be found faithful, making disciples for your kingdom. Not to make our name big and not for the provision, but for your mercy, for your glory, for your kingdom, because of what you've done for us.
pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, don't let the worries of life squash that. Like, go, go do this. You know what I mean? Go do this. God bless you guys. Love you.